This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... We have the DRC conflict analyst Nixon Katembo on the complex conflict in the eastern DRC. We'll also have an update on the climate talks in Egypt and Microsoft founder Bill Gates is in Kenya. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. Our top story, the COP27 Global Climate Summit is working its way through its agenda in Egypt, and VOA's Heather Murdoch in Egypt is back with us to update us on the latest development. Hi, Heather, and welcome back to Africa Hello. News Tonight. Yes, uh, Thank you. Heather, so China, along with about 77 developing economies, apparently proposed a loss and damage fund. Could you give us some context on that? Yes, this is the big sticking point that's making it difficult to come to a conclusion. They're expecting to announce um, some kind of final deal plan tomorrow night, but uh, the, the loss and damage fund is the most tricky part of it. What Basically, they want to make a new kind of fund for wealthy countries to pay for poor countries, and it's poor countries that are not only on the front lines of climate change usually, they're also the lowest emitters. So there's a basic fairness question um, that pretty much everyone agrees on. This is fair. However, finding ways to move that money to the people who need it is quite difficult. Um, Some countries, including the U.S., have mentioned that they will not accept unlimited liability. Um, They will fund climate change-related disaster funds, but not unlimited ones, and they have not yet to announce how they're going to make this loss and damage fund uh, acceptable to all of the important countries that need to give money to the fund. And also, I understand that you've been talking to people about the Amazon ahead of the Brazilian president-elect speech. What's that about? Uh, yes, today was an exciting day here at COP27, the Brazilian president-elect uh, is speaking right now. He's about to finish. Um, this is considered his entrance back onto the world stage. And for climate change activists and delegates and people here, it is the re-entrance of Brazil to the climate action world. Um, his predecessor, current President Bolsonaro, has uh, overseen some of the worst for- deforestation of the Amazon rainforest in history. And has pledged to stop this deforestation. It's a difficult thing that will require political uh, support at home and international support, and he is hoping to kick off a end to the destruction of the rainforest today. And lastly, uh, there is our anti-meat protesters pushing to reduce uh, livestock production. What is the connection with climate change? Yes, as you know, there's a limited, only a limited amount of activists having protests at this conference um, based on Egyptian, the Egyptian rules. But these uh, vegan activists have been outside the conference almost every day, often dressed in costumes of pigs and cows. And what they're saying is that everyone eats vegan, it's better for the environment. And this is not a 
incorrect claim. There's a huge amount of, of greenhouse gas emissions come from the meat industry, about 20%, and scientists say it actually could be even more. Um, so there's a kind of irony there. You see the vegan activists when you walk in, and the first thing you see when you cross the gates is a booth selling hamburgers and the smell of cooking beef. And uh, mm-hmm. while veganism is not on the table, it's it, at the... Uh, at the conference, it's one one way that the world could improve the climate by individual actions. So they are trying to make a point, and they have been heard a bit here, if not officially on the conference floor. From Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt, VOA's Heather Murdoch, thank you for your input. Thank you. The International Rescue Committee is urging donors to provide immediate cash to help tens of millions of people at risk of famine in East Africa. Reuters says the UN expects famine to be declared in parts of Somalia within a few months. According to the news service, IRC President David Melban says more than half of all deaths in Somalia from hunger in 2011 took place before famine was declared. In a virtual news briefing, he said the war in Ukraine has diverted attention and funds from humanitarian relief in the region and that only the United States has increased its financial support. The IRC says nine million cattle have died in East Africa. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has urged Rwanda to take steps to facilitate de-escalation in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where Congolese troops are fighting M23 rebels. The DRC government says Rwanda is supporting the insurgents, which Kigali denies. Rwanda's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Vincent Beruta, met Blinken on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, yesterday. Darren Taylor has more. After talking with the U.S. Secretary of State, Beruta said Rwanda remains committed to peace and stability in eastern DRC. M23 rebels have made huge gains in the region in recent weeks, capturing key cities and towns. The M23 was formed in 2012, claiming to defend the interests of Congolese Tutsis, who share ethnicity with Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame. A peace deal in 2013 ended battles between the rebels and Hutu-armed groups, but the M23 resumed fighting in late 2021, accusing Kinshasa of reneging on agreements. DRC conflict analyst Nixon Katembo says President Felix Chesikadi's accusation that Rwanda's backing the M23 is credible. Some of us are in touch with the locals and some of the military units within Rwanda and inside the DRC who have confirmed to us we, we are here. Those are Rwandan special forces. In August, United Nations investigators said they had solid evidence that members of Rwanda's armed forces were operating in eastern DRC in support of the rebels. Kigali again denied this, but countered that the DRC supports the forces for the liberation of Rwanda, a Hutu rebel group the UNS said was involved in the 1994 genocide of Tutsis. Kinshasa denies backing any rebels. Katembo says the constant accusations and counter-accusations aren't doing anyone any good. 
is a meeting back and forth between President Kagame and President Jisekedi. And I blame this on the Congolese themselves. They should take responsibility for the diplomatic mess that they have created, and not only that, failing to guarantee the security of the citizens of that country. He says the current peace process is too narrow and unfocused. The problem here is for Kagame and President Jisekedi to sit down, including President Yoram Seveni, including Evarishin Daishimiye of Burundi, to say how would we foster peace in the Great Lakes region and by extension in East Africa. Katembo says a much wider process of negotiations must happen because Rwanda and DRC aren't the only ones supposedly supporting rebels and destabilizing the Great Lakes region. He points out that a joint force of South African, Malawian, Tanzanian and Congolese troops defeated the M23 in 2013. Where did they run to? To Uganda and Rwanda. Who is arming them? They were quote-unquote refugees in Rwanda or refugees in Uganda. If they were refugees, how did they get out of refugee camps, for example, regroup, rearm themselves and get back inside the DRC? Those questions are not being asked. Katembo says it's up to Africa to bring peace to eastern DRC, as attempts by external actors have so far failed, and not all those working to end the violence are trusted by all parties. The nations have become part of the problem of the DRC. They have been there for the past 22 years. What have they done? Civilians are being massacred while they are there. Now, if you look at the context of the Great Lakes region and the geopolitics within the region, you would see that Kigali have, over the years, been supported by the United States and the United Kingdom. Chisekedi said recently he could not rule out the possibility of war with Rwanda if provocations continue. Should this happen, say conflict analysts, it'll likely pull other countries in. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. More international aid is arriving in Ethiopia's Tigray region, ending months-long blockade after the warring sides agreed to a ceasefire. Fred Harter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The UN's food program, or WFP, said Wednesday that its trucks had arrived in northwest Tigray via Gonda, a city in the Amhara region to the south. The aid organization said more food, nutrition, medical cargo will follow imminently through all available routes into Tigray. The news comes a day after two trucks of medical supplies from the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, reached Mekele, Tigray's regional capital. Two years of war in the northern region have displaced an estimated 2.5 million people from their homes and left millions more in need of food aid and other basic necessities. The ICRC said Wednesday that a test flight had arrived in Shire, a city in northwest Tigray that hosts hundreds of thousands of people uprooted by recent fighting. The resumption of airlifts could alleviate the suffering of thousands needing immediate support, the ICRC said. The Gondar route used by the WFP convoy had been closed to aid groups since June, 
when federal forces and their allies retreated from Tigray in the face of an offensive by rebel forces led by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. Over the weekend, military leaders from both sides reached an agreement laying out a roadmap for implementing the ceasefire, which was signed in Pretoria on November 2. The accord contains security guarantees for humanitarian workers and pledges the parties to facilitating unhindered humanitarian access to Tigray, although phone, internet and banking services have not yet been restored to the region. Fred Harter for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Microsoft founder Bill Gates is in Kenya for a three-day tour on behalf of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Gates is expected to meet with various leaders and take part in events focused on ways to deal with climate change. Wangeri Wanyoke reports from Nairobi, Kenya. American businessman Bill Gates is slated to hold a series of public engagements that will include meetings with national and local leaders during a three-day visit to Kenya that began on Tuesday. Gates toured Makweni County, located in the southeastern part of Kenya, where he met with county leader Motula Kilonzo Tuesday at his office. Kenya's Citizen TV also reported that Gates visited the Makweni Mother and Child Hospital. The Gates Foundation has committed to finding farmers in sub-Saharan Africa who have come up with innovative ideas that could help with food security and combat climate change. The Microsoft founder met with two farmers who are promoting irrigation as a strategy to deal with East Africa's increasingly erratic rainfall. Kenya, like other East African countries, is going through a severe drought that has left millions of people needing food aid. Gates said he is focused on learning from farmers who are using digital farming tools, such as applications that can help detect diseases in plants. On Thursday this week, Gates will be at Kenya's University of Nairobi, where he will meet with students to discuss other ways to improve food security and adaptation to global warming. Wangari Wanyoika for VOA News, Nairobi, Kenya. Reuters is reporting that Sudan's pro-democracy coalition called the Forces of Freedom and Change says it has reached a framework agreement with the military to end the country's political deadlock that began just over a year ago with the military coup. A second stage of talks to be launched will reportedly take up transitional justice, dismantling the Bashir regime and other areas. Sudanese analyst Jihad Mashmoon, who is an honorary research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in England, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam his sources in Sudan say the agreement contains an immunity clause for military leaders. The, mil- the military, on its own, it wants an immunity to, uh, to avoid prosecution for the crimes before the transition period uh, that ended in 2021, October 2021, and until the new government is formed. And- that's the sticking point. There is, seems to be like a political game happening around this, is that the military is actually trying to discredit the FFC yeah, from the rest of the protest movement, that is the resistance uh, committee. Now, the military wants to discredit them in order to tell the civil population, see, the civilians don't really care about you. And also it's discrediting the armed movements in Darfur and Blue Nile to tell them, see, the armed movements don't even care about you. They're all opportunists. You have no one but to rely on us, the military. 
So we yeah. have heard that we heard that that is the game plan of the military in the past, but this is a new development that they have reached a framework agreement. Are you hearing that this framework agreement is in place and that they are moving forward from that to end the political deadlock in the country? What I'm hearing officially is that they did receive uh, comments and feedback from the military on what the FFC has been focusing on in the talks, indirect talks. And that they're reviewing it, especially the immunity clause, and that they'll come out with responses uh, tomorrow after discussing it. When you talk about the immunity clause, uh, Jihad, what what exactly do you mean by that? Okay, that's a great question. The immunity clause, basically, the military wants is that no one is going to be prosecuted for the crimes committed so far from the military or the armed forces. Now, there is a study focusing now on putting something called procedural immunity that the immunity clause would be removed by a vote of parliament, the legislative council, if there is a legislative council, that it will be tasked with, uh, it's only one responsible for removing the, removing the procedural immunity of any figure in the sovereign council or in the government. Now, would that kind of a deal, immunity deal, affect you know, the former uh, Sudanese leader, Omar al-Bashir? Would it affect some of his allies that are you know, currently still facing some charges, criminal charges? That deal mostly centered around the military uh, that the FFC is speaking with. Now, the former president, Omar al-Bashir, and the others who are wanted by the ICC, they're focusing on handing, uh, prosecuting them and handing them over. Absolutely. And they also promised to focus on allowing the commission to do its work and investing in the emptying of the protest site. That's Jihad Mashmoon, a Sudanese expert and honorary research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in England. He was speaking with my colleague, Carl Van Dam, this past hour. The World Health Organization reports skin-to-skin contact between mother and baby immediately after birth could save the lives of hundreds of thousands of premature babies. The WHO has released new guidelines to improve the survival and health of low-birth preterm babies. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Every year, the WHO estimates 15 million babies are born preterm, amounting to more than 1 in 10 of all births globally. It says about 10% or 1.4 million babies die each year due to complications of preterm births. It says that number is rising and prematurity is now the leading cause of death among children under 5. Karen Edmund is the medical officer and a pediatrician in the maternal, newborn, child, and adolescent and aging health department at the WHO. She says implementing the WHO's new recommendations could save the lives of 50% or 700,000 babies born early or small. And by that we mean babies who are born preterm or low birth weight, babies who are born before 37 weeks of pregnancy or under 2.5 kilograms at birth. The guidelines advise that skin-to-skin contact with a caregiver known as kangaroo mother care should start immediately after birth without any initial period in an incubator. Edmund says that is a big change from earlier guidance and common clinical practice. 
Preterm babies, she says, lack body fat and often require medical assistance with breathing. Previous recommendations, she notes, were for mother and baby to be separated around three to seven days while the newborn was stabilized in an incubator or warmer. The new guidance, she says, acknowledges the first embrace with a parent is emotionally important and critical for improving chances of survival for small and premature babies. And also notably, the guidelines now advise that intensive care units should reorient so that the mother and baby can stay together, keeping the baby in skin-to-skin contact 24 hours a day, even if the baby needs to be in the neonatal intensive care unit or intensive care. The WHO says significant disparities in a preterm baby's chances of surviving depend on where they are born. It says most babies born at or after 28 weeks in high-income countries go on to survive, while in poorer countries, survival rates can be as low as 10%. Edmund says the new guidelines are simple and practical and can make a real difference to the care of the most vulnerable babies in all settings. She She says the new recommendations have special relevance in poorer developing countries that may not have access to high-tech equipment or even reliable electricity. She says ensuring access to essential health care that is centered around the needs of families increases the baby's chances for survival. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Cameroon is one of the five African teams competing in the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar. The indomitable Lions began their preparation last October. The course then continued at home with, this time, a workforce made up of mostly local players. The national team took to the road to Qatar on November 10th. Emmanuel Julesen Tap reported on the story, read by Antonio Labruto. Cameroon's indomitable Lions are set for the World Cup tournament on Sunday. The team's head coach, Rigobert Song, explains the selection process for the published list of the 26-member national team selected for the World Cup, which includes 24 professional and two local players. My colleagues and I have gone through all the points and tried to see which corresponded to what we are looking for, but we will continue in our effort, give hope to the Cameroonian youth today who have chosen to do this job. Coach Song would not comment on his selection decision, but not everyone is happy with it. In Yeyende, some, like Jean-Marc Biam, expressed mixed feelings over the exclusion of big-name players like Mikel Gadu. He says this puts too much pressure on those selected, like Nicolas Koulou. Uh, the absence of Ngandu is disturbing. Kulu alone can do anything. If we could call Ngandu back to the team, it really should be fine. Suleiman, who works in Yeyende, says the coach should take responsibility if the teams don't do well due to Ngadu's absence. If the coach believes that Ngandeu is no longer good, he's the one who bears the responsibility for the team. I think that the return of Nicolas Nkulu can fill the hole. So far, Cameroon has yet to win any friendly matches against teams less capped than Switzerland, Serbia and Brazil that the indomitable Lions will meet in pool matches.
sports journalist Joseph Valerie Fosto explained. We played Uzbekistan, we took two, we played Korea, and we conceded a goal. Regardless of the level of the opponent who is there, do we receive the balls as we should? Do we look for a solution forward when we have made two passes in our camp? Does it pass with a low opponent? With a less capped opponent, it can always pass. So the most important thing is to stay applied. Before the start of the competition, the technical staff of the Indomitable Lions will have another regrouping with the entire workforce. Assistant coach Augustine Simo says there's nothing to worry about. Another match is scheduled against Panama on the 18th, so we will also have time to refine and work on specific points that we saw against Korea. So there is nothing to worry about. Cameroon will participate in its eighth World Cup. The country reached the quarterfinal stage in Italy in 1990. For Emmanuel Jules and Tap, this is Anthony Labruto for VOA in Washington. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Shogun Chung, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.